0: Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Wendy Liebman has influenced a generation of comedians by realizing a joke doesn't have to end before the next punchline. I met up with Lehman in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where it all began for her and where she was staying to perform in multiple shows for the 2015 Boston Comedy Festival. We spoke about her place in the star-making Boston comedy scene of the 1980s, how she found and developed her comedic voice, taking a break from the road to raise a family, and how a brush with death convinced her to get back into the fast lane of stand-up. Competing live in primetime TV on America's Got Talent in 2014, and recently opening up her own comedy room in Studio City, California. So let's get to it! All right, so Wendy Lehman, thank you for letting me hang out in between tour stops for you.
1: Thank you for having me in this hotel lobby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the life of a comedian, is being on the road.
1: I have spent... About 20 years um, collecting shampoo Mm -hmm. and soaps. And we just moved. And I have to tell you, I donated a a barrel of soap and shampoo to a women's uh, home (laughs) because I I didn't want to move it with me. I kept some. But, I mean, I literally had
0: like a trunk full of... Um, sundries. Were you keeping them because you're a hoarder or for sentimental value? I'm not so much of a
1: hoarder. I am kind of a whore. Okay. Um, no, I. you know what? I don't know why I kept it. It was almost like I thought at some point I would donate it all to a women's shelter mm-hmm. um, because I don't use... I didn't use it. I just... Maybe some of the soaps. Okay. But, um... Yeah, I've been traveling for about 20 years.
0: Your story, I, I'm, I'm anxious to talk to you because your story has two beginnings. Okay. Well, when we, the last time we saw each other, as you were just uh, reminding me, was in the summer of 2014 when you were on America's Got Talent.
1: That's right. I was a semi-finalist.
0: You were Howard Stern's pick.
1: I was his wild card. That's what my husband calls me now, the wild card. <laughs> But can I just tell you something real about that? Sure. Like, first of all, I did the show for uh, about three reasons. And one of them was because I wanted to meet Howard Stern. Because oh. I am such a fan. Okay. I know he's controversial, blah, blah, blah. But I just think he's a comedic genius. And, uh, even though I was his wild card pick, mm-hmm. I never met him, except to wave at him from the stage oh wow and TV is so fucking phony Mm -hmm. can I swear on here yeah okay (laughs) so I spelled it with a PH both fucking and phony um I yeah they they pretended that he called me Mm -hmm. but it was really a producer that called me okay but they had my reaction as if Howard Stern was calling me so I never got to meet him in the end hmm hmm but I had a great experience. Um, the other reason, one of the other reasons I did the show was because my husband and I were hit by a drunk driver. Oh my did goodness. I tell you this when I saw you? No, Dad? you didn't. We were hit by a drunk driver in December of 2013, and there were seven cars totaled. Ours was one of them, and there was one fatality. Mm. And it was the woman in the car right next to me and had any of the variables shifted it could have been me like we were almost in that lane but we got out of that lane because we saw some kids up ahead who we thought were rowdy and we wanted to see what they were up to so we got out of that lane so we could see them and in the end some guy went we were all at a stoplight and in the end some guy was going 90 miles an hour and he like basically bowled into this line of cars oh my and It was at that moment I had three thoughts. The first was get out of the car because we didn't know what was going on. The second was I should have eaten dessert (laughs) because you never know when your last dessert is going to be. And my third thought was I have to get back out there in the public. I had been doing comedy for 30 years at that point. But I felt like, I sort of disappeared because I took a little time off, not completely, like I never well, went. That's what I want
0: to ask you about. Yeah,
1: I never stopped, Right. but I had been going in like the fast lane and now I was moved over to the breakdown lane because I was raising 2 stepsons 90% of the time. And um, so it was at that moment that I realized I have to get back out there, my kids are grown up now. And um, so that was the second reason I did America's
0: Got Talent. But you said there were three.
1: Yeah, let me think of what the third was. The third was... Uh, hmm,
0: for those of you listening, there the, were three. To,
1: to be in New York for 20 days so I didn't have to do laundry in uh. California. No. I guess the so third are, reason so was just, accomplished. Yeah. No, I guess the third reason was just um, I saw some of my on the show and mm-hmm. I was like that looks like fun I wonder if I could do that so right. it was just oh it was a personal challenge and mm-hmm. I wanted to show my steps on sometimes you have to get out of your comfort zone and really take a chance and believe in yourself and it really made me more confident like I it gave me an extra boost of confidence and now I have a few more fans so
0: even though you had been on national television before
1: yeah and the, The America's Got Talent people didn't care. Mm -hmm. The only thing they cared about... Because, like, some of the other contestants had record deals and were already performing in Las Vegas. Right. So I didn't feel like I was too accomplished. They just cared that I disclosed that I had known Howie Manziel. (laughs) So, because, you know, that would break the rules. So he couldn't vote. It would certainly break the fourth wall. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he couldn't vote for me, so... um, but I had my first job in LA when I moved there in '91. Was writing for Howie Manziel. He had a short-lived variety show. There after like, St. Elsewhere. Yeah. Well, way after it was '92. Yeah. I'm
0: trying so, to well, um, it was what was called he doing Howie. in '91? Okay.
1: It was called the Howie Show or something, and we shot them in Anaheim. There were four of them, mm-hmm. and. Some of the other writer, one of the other writers was Steve Higgins, who now is Jimmy Fallon's sidekick.
0: Right, and also an Uber producer at Saturday Night Live.
1: Right, and um, it was the Higgins boys and Gruber; oh, they yeah. were a team. Uh, Howard Busgang and Mark Blattman, mm-hmm. who were also writers on Boy Meets World, which is what my husband was a writer on. So, like, it was just so weird. It's a small comedy world,
0: isn't it? <laughs> it is. No, so when you moved to LA for that job, did you move from Boston, or were you living in New York, or where were you? I was at in Boston. Mm-hmm. I
1: started stand up in Boston, which is where we are right now. Yeah. Um, but that's not why I'm. I didn't move for the job. That's just the first job I got okay. when I moved to LA. I moved to I moved to LA because um, I'd been on the Tonight Show, and I thought I can either stay in Boston. Or move to New York or LA, mm-hmm. and I picked LA because my parents live in New York. And <laughs> uh, I didn't want to move back to New York. That's where I'm from.
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a valid, valid argument. I mean, where I, are you
1: from? I know I'm not. I grew your up
0: name, in I grew up in Connecticut. Oh. And then after college, I decided to move out west to, to be a newspaper reporter because I wanted to get as far away from where <laughs> I grew up. No offense to of my parents. I just wanted to experience a different part of the country.
1: Sure. What part of Connecticut?
0: Uh, I grew up in Simsbury, which is outside of Hartford. A nice, quiet place to raise a kid or two and a dog.
1: Bucolic?
0: Yeah. Very, uh, very preppy in the you have a
1: Did you have a dog?
0: I've never had a dog of my own. My parents have always had dogs.
1: I never had a dog until I was 45. Oh, and So there's still time for me. I don't know how old you are. (laughs) No, you don't have to tell me. Um, But I am obsessed with my dogs. I mean, I miss my dogs more than I miss anything. Oh. I know. (laughs) And I post about um, my dogs on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I have today's JJ moment. JJ is, um, he's a rescue. He's a Bichon poodle. And he is so funny. He could smell a piece of chicken in the next room, but he has no idea that his ass smells like shit. (laughs) I saw a dog in um, Chestnut Hill Mm -hmm. wearing those Crest White strips. I thought that was pretty funny. That's... I'm just doing my act for you.
0: You're very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think that this was going to be your life and career when you were growing up?
1: You know, when I was little, I wanted to be Julie Andrews.
0: Okay, so and were aspirations. I remember
1: telling my parents they were wasting money getting me braces because I was just going to knock out my teeth and get the perfect set of Julie Andrews. Te- I, I don't even know what that meant. I just... <laughs> You're looking at me like I'm crazy. I guess I am. But um, I wanted to be Julie Andrews. Mm-hmm. Or uh, then some of my other idols were Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl. I watched Flip Wilson, Carol Burnett, Lily Tomlin. Another influence is the Harlem Globetrotters because I remember my dad took me to see them a lot. Oh, yeah. And I loved to laugh. And um, so I didn't... I don't know if I pictured this as my life, but I always did a lot of like theater, musical comedy, and what's so funny is my husband's family, they're, I don't know if you know this, they wrote music for Disney. No. My father's, my father-in-law, yeah. my father-in-law and his brother, are the Sherman brothers, they wrote a lot of um, Disney music, like they wrote the score for Mary Poppins. And who starred in Mary Poppins? Julian. But Julie Andrews. So I got pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't met her, but I did meet Dick Van Dyke once, and he oh, looked wow. at me and said, "You're funny." <laughs> That's I'm great. Like, Could I bronze that comment? Yeah. So I, I, told my husband he's the only man that I would leave him for. It was, it was Dick, Dick Van Dyke. Dyke? Yeah.
0: And he, he was in a, a an almost fatal car accident a couple of years ago. Yeah. But, his, but he's okay. Yeah, but he he turned out fine. But his car blew up. Was it on on the f- on, in L. A. on, LA, the, on the freeway? Pacific yeah. yeah. Uh Yeah. All right. So so you were interested in very musical theater, sh- showman. The Harlem Globetrotters, very showmanship. A lot of entertainers. But but you started in. You were studying psychology. Well, so and I did. You kind of came in through a back door.
1: I did a lot of theater in high school. Like I was always. Eliza and My Fair Lady and Dorothy and The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. and um, in co- I went to school in Boston and I was in Hair, the, the play Hair. Yeah. No nudity
0: though. But that there was, was no that nudity. was what it was famously infamous for in the was nudity in the seventies was yeah, yeah nudity on Broadway.
1: But no, we all had clothes on, and um, I was in a play called Uncommon Women and Others which was written by Wendy Wasserstein. And the play was about an all women's college and looking back at a reunion, they were all looking back. And my character was the philosophy major. Mm-hmm. And she always said the funny things at the end of each scene. Okay, So it was the first time I got laughs while on stage. Plus, I didn't have to remember that many lines because she was kind of catasonic. And um, that was the first time I got laughs on stage. And it's somewhat addictive. Yes. But then I, I was a psychology major. I was working at Harvard Medical School doing psych research. We were studying children's coping mechanisms, like looking at different populations, like the di- kids with diabetes, long-term illnesses, versus people who had just broken bones and stuff. I don't even remember, remember what we found out. But um, I realized I took the mail in from the wrong apartment, and it was. I got the course catalog for the adult center, uh, adult education center in Cambridge, Cambridge Center for Adult Education. And there was a class, uh, how to be a stand up comedian. And it was like, oh, oh," like Eureka. (laughs) I I just was drawn to that. Uh, I had. It just resonated on some level. And to this day, I'm friends with the teacher. Yeah, who taught? His name is Ron Lynch. Oh, Ron Lynch taught yeah. that class. Yeah, and he, there were a lot of people that came from that class. Yeah, who else like, was in um, the class? Not in my class, but... Um, Vinny Favorito. Okay. And um, a guy named Steve Trilling, who went on to run Semantic. Now. But... Um, yeah, it really was just a place to get together and hang out and drink beer after the class. And um, now Ron lives in L.A. and he has a 10-year running show that he does. The Tomorrow Show. Yeah. So, um, So yeah, I mean, I think life is just like a series of, I don't know, I didn't have like a vision mm-hmm. that I wanted to do stand-up, but it just all felt right. And now I've been doing it 30 years. I'm well, still not sure I picked
0: the right Well, back when you graduated from Ron Lynch's class. Yes. Uh, I mean, that was when the, Bo- what was the Boston scene like at that moment? I know there's the documentary when stand-up stood out. And Which I haven't seen
1: yet. I know. Probably I,
0: because you're not in it enough.
1: Well, I'm not in it. I think my picture's yeah, on the that's wall. That's not enough. Yeah. You're not in it enough. But um, it was a really right, time Mm -hmm. like there were so many stand-ups great like david cross was here louis ck okay so ron and i had a show in central square called um it was a, a theater called off the wall cinema Okay. And it was a movie theater. And at night, we ran a comedy show.
0: Now, did he offer this to all of his students or just oh, no, <laughs> or just, the good, just, just the no. good ones?
1: Oh, no. It was more like he just had a room there. And mm-hmm. so, like, I took tickets for him. Okay. Like, I worked it for him. And this guy walked in, and he goes, what's the movie? And I said, oh, it's a comedy show tonight. Mm-hmm. And it was a slow night, so I was like, just come in. Like, I didn't even charge him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then he came back the next night, and it was Louis C.K., and I didn't even have a camera back then, but I have a picture of Louis C.K. with hair on stage at off-the-wall cinema.
0: So this would be like 1986,
1: 1987? Yeah, 1986 or 5 even. Yeah. Because
0: so I've seen video of him from 87. Yeah. It's the was old catch.
1: Right. And so I worked at Stitches. I worked at um, Play It Again Sam's. Catch Rising Star, the Comedy Connection, Nix. Um, and the headliners would come through. Like, I remember Jon Stewart came through, Norm MacDonald, Carol Siskin, Brett Butler. I used to go to every show. Like, I would just plant myself at, I love to laugh.
0: What was your home club then?
1: I would say Catch, mm-hmm. but that started a couple of years after I started. So okay. I worked at Stitches mostly, but then Catch became my place. And um, I guess when I started, I was really depressed because I was working with all the I was working at Mass Mental Hospital, and it was a hard environment to be around. And I decided I didn't want to be a, um, a psychologist at that point. Uh, so I went into stand-up comedy, <laughs> um, but we're, there are we're, similarities. We're all the
0: we're all the, the psych patients have to listen to you.
1: Exactly, it's similar. It's forty-five to fifty minutes. <laughs> you either laugh or cry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but yeah, so did I answer a question?
0: Did you did you do what what? what all the guys of the time were saying, which was try to rack up like seven shows a night on the weekends at all the different Boston area clubs? A lot of regional road work, all that kind of thing? Well, there were
1: clubs everywhere. Like they would put up a comedy room everywhere. Somebody joked there was one in a photo map booth once. Not real. There wasn't really (laughs) one. But, um, you know, because we're like, we travel light. All Mm -hmm. we need is the microphone. So... They were popping up all over the place. So I did a lot of shows, maybe not seven, but... And I had a day job, so I had to get back to...
0: When did you make the switch and drop the day job? What was the turning point?
1: So I guess six years in, Mm -hmm. I entered a contest, the Johnny Walker Comedy Competition, and... Um, Bud Friedman who owns the Improv and his wife Alex Friedman saw me and they and Al, it was Alex who said to Bud she's funny and so I won the Boston competition and mm-hmm. then they flew me to LA to be in the bigger competition and a guy from the Tonight Show saw me at that show and he booked me on the Tonight Show and I guess it was probably a little bit after that. I was like, I, I, I need to just take the leap of faith, and um, so I moved to LA. I can't. In hindsight, Mm -hmm. it was really bold because I didn't know anybody in LA. I still don't.
0: (laughs) But you had, (laughs) but you had the job with Howie.
1: I didn't move for the job it was just something that was one thing I was submitted for and I got that it was the summer of 92 so it was a year after I moved there so So what
0: was that first year for you like in LA
1: so I had an agent Mm -hmm. and I got booked a lot like in Vegas and so so as soon as I moved to LA I went on the road and I had never been on the road because I had a day job so um, yeah so that's what it was like it was like I moved to LA I put my stuff there and then Mm -hmm. I went on the road
0: The first time you went on the road, were you a feature or a headliner?
1: Uh, Some places I featured. I remember I featured in Dallas. I opened for Paul Kozak, the magician. Oh, I know Paul.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) I
1: I opened for Jon Stewart. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. Oh, and then okay. I became a headliner. And I remember my first headlining gig, it was in West Palm Beach. And my grandmother was in the audience. And, you know, anything I did was fine <laughs> for her.
0: <laughs> that didn't bother you that she was there?
1: Oh, no, I loved it. At, she couldn't hear.
0: At what point in your development as a as a stand-up, did you figure out your, your particular voice and also cadence? I... I don't think you get enough credit for how much influence you have over a generation of comedians. Wow. In how they they structure punchlines kind of the same way you did. You're
1: gonna make me cry. <laughs> you know, I I think any artist, mm-hmm. if I can call myself that, is influenced by their peers. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in this in this Boston comedy community listening to Don Gavin to Brian Kylie, to Jonathan Katz to Bill Broaddus to Laura Keitlinger um, and it just Kevin Meany mm-hmm. and I remember being on stage once and thinking I do not want to be standing here in silence like that's such a fear and so I would just keep adding a punchline and I guess that's how it developed because I didn't want to be on stage without getting a laugh.
0: So you just... I just kept adding... When there was a pause, you're like, well, I guess I'll just (laughs) keep... The the sentence hasn't stopped yet. I'm not done.
1: So um, people have said to me that just what you said, that Mm. I have my own style, but...
0: I mean, Ellen DeGeneres
1: does it. Kevin Nealon. So I don't. I can't really claim it as my own.
0: I guess. I guess it just seems for, for you, as much more of a signature, or a calling card.
1: Okay. All right. I'll. I'll I didn't manage to say
0: that in the form of a Wendy Liebman joke, but.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's my real (laughs) laugh.
0: So okay. So, you you mentioned that right before the at the time of your your car accident that you were in with your husband where you were hit by the drunk driver that you felt your career was in the breakdown lane
1: yeah what
0: what is that what does the breakdown lane look like for a stand-up comedian
1: um instead of traveling two or three weekends a month mm-hmm. I would go away one weekend a month and I would do a spot here or there in town when I first moved to LA in Nin, in the early 90s, I performed every night. But then, I got a little more domesticated, and I got married in 2003. And I wanted to be around my kid, my stepkids, and so I became more of a homebody, I guess. So, um, because I wasn't getting out more, I wasn't trying new material. I, I wasn't flexing that muscle, and um, so. Yeah, I just realized I wanted to keep working. so.
0: Wait, so how much were you working then?
1: Like one or two, one weekend a month okay. and going out once or twice a month in town. Okay. So there aren't as many venues in L.A. as as there were in Boston. Maybe there are now because there are a lot of like the indie rooms. Right, a lot have popped up. And I started my own room just in June. Okay. I decided I wanted to walk to work. Mm -hmm. And I lived lived up until last Tuesday. I lived in Studio City. Okay. And um, I had performed once at a restaurant called Vitello's. It's Mm kind of famous because, I don't know if you remember Robert Blake shot his wife or allegedly shot his wife after dinner once. He walked her to the car, mm-hmm. and then he went back to the restaurant because he forgot his gun. That's what he said. Right. You don't want to leave your gun at a restaurant. No. So no. then he walked no back you're to the car. going to use it for killing. <laughs> well, he was never uh, <laughs> convicted, but he walked back to the car and then mm. found her dead. Mm. So anyway, Vitello's is the restaurant that he went, that they were eating okay. at. So um, I guess the owner was selling the restaurant Mm -hmm. after that and somebody bought it and just to you know as I said earlier life is just a weird set of coincidences events strung together I happened to know somebody who knew the owner of Vitello's Mm -hmm. now and um, she said yeah give him a call start a room there so I did And they had been doing music in the room and the neighbors were complaining a lot about the noise. So they were looking for something quieter. Okay. So it was just like the most perfect timing. And um, so we decided to do it once a month. Mm -hmm. I have like eight comedians on the show and me and it's called Locally Grown Comedy. And last week, George Lopez he I tweeted about it a lot I tweet about it a lot and Mm -hmm. he saw it and he said I want to come down and so he came to the show Mm -hmm. and he headlined and then he decided he wants to do the room more so we set up an another night for him it's going to be November 23rd and he's bringing DL Hughley and (laughs) Arsenio so this is my little locally grown comedy show uh it's organically growing into what it should be. And I just want to make it, you know, so many years of performing, I know what I would want as a comedian. So I try to make it the best gig ever for the comics. I wish I could give them thousands of dollars for performing, but um, it's just a fun night. What's the
0: trade secret for making it a great show without the thousands of dollars?
1: Um, Just treating the comedians, Mm especially like, appreciating them and feeding them and just caring about them so I want them to have a good time I want the audience to have a good time I want it to be a win win so plus I give them a massage no I don't really
0: Is there room for that in in Is it still called Vitello's or what's it called now?
1: It's Vitello's. Um, The room itself is the E-Spot Lounge Mm -hmm. because Sheila E. had it for a year. Oh,
0: okay. That'd be a lot of noise.
1: Well, a lot of drumming. Definitely a lot of drumming. Um, But I guess that contract is up, but they're still calling it the E-Spot, like entertainment spot. And it's just the perfect comedy room because the ceiling is low.
0: Oh, that is good for comedy.
1: Yeah, acoustically, if the ceiling is high, then the laughs get lost. And I'm, my hardest gig ever was about 15, 20 years ago. I was performing at a Nike Christmas party for the employees. In Oregon? Or? Yeah, it was yeah. in Oregon. And they treated me so amazing. I had never, they gave me, they paid me more money for a gig than I got as a secretary for a year. Mm right? They gave me free sneakers. (laughs) They put up a friend of mine. They flew us first class. The gig itself, they were playing basketball in the back. And there were four couches set up. And I was about 20 feet on a platform. And the ceiling was like a cathedral. And I would tell a joke, and it would just, (laughs) and I just sat there and I said, just do it. You know, like the Nike people tell you, just do it. Just do
0: it. What's so? What's the best? What's the last uh, great piece of advice you've received?
1: Last for great work or life. Piece of advice I've received for yeah. work or life. Um, hmm. Uh, floss. Hmm.
0: That is good, <laughs> especially.
1: Floss. Actually, if I don't floss before a show, mm-hmm. it's like kind of my not right before the show, but at least once before the show that day. Mm-hmm. That's my, my superstition. Like
0: your last pre-show ritual?
1: Yeah, it's, my, it's a superstition. And the one time I didn't floss, nothing happened, oh. but <laughs> it's, still, it's still something I like to keep doing. But Stephen Wright gave me good advice once okay. when I was doing The Tonight Show. I, oh, right. He was a friend of Ron Lynch, and so somehow I got to meet him. I idolized that man. And uh, he was in town last night doing the Boston Garden. The comics come home. Yeah, I believe it was last with, night. Yeah, with, Dan- with uh, Louis C.K. Dennis Leary's Dennis Leary annual Lenny fundraiser. Clark. Right. Um, he said, "When you're doing the Tonight Show, just perform for the people in the audience. Don't perform for the people at home because you can't hear them." Yeah. <laughs> so it really made it really made a lot of sense. Just perform. For that audience.
0: Is that what you did uh, <laughs> years later when you did America's Got Talent?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, couldn't think about the millions of people.
0: <laughs> On live television. On
1: live TV. <laughs> oh, now I'm nervous. <laughs> At least they
0: didn't have like applause meters or...
1: Oh, yeah. No, that's fake.
0: The things that focus groups do where they they show the lines going up and down if they like what you're saying or not what Well, you're
1: during preliminary... America's Got Talent shows—they tried that out, not with my, not with the comedians, but with some of the other acts. Mm -hmm. They had the audience holding up their cell phones, if they liked it, like, (laughs) oh my goodness, I know. And that lasted about 40 minutes, and then (laughs) they canned that because it wasn't working. It was just distracting. Like if you're thinking about your phone, and yeah, yeah, it didn't
0: work. Overcomplicated. Yeah. Just uh, laugh or don't. When uh, when a new aspiring comedian approaches you and asks you for advice, what's the first thing you tell them?
1: Um, I say uh, grande soy latte, please. Um, no, I say um, perform as much as humanly possible because a lot of people think that they're just... Um, you can be funny. You you can be funny, but unless you have actually performed in front of an audience, I don't know. I say perform as much as you can. And the other advice I give, which is advice that I should really I wish somebody had given to me, is try one new joke every show because it's taken me years to infuse new material. I write every day on mm-hmm. Twitter and Facebook like I write jokes. Um, but I, it takes me a little, it takes me a little while to bring it into the act. So I wish somebody had told me that I have to do that all the time. So that's what I tell other people. You know, if you can't do teach.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad that Ron Lynch taught you.
1: He's the funniest. (laughs) He's like the Buster Keaton of our time. I think he's that funny. So dry.
0: Well, Wendy, thank you so much. <gasps>
1: thank you so much for having me on. Always oh, a pleasure. And let's do this again okay. in 10 years.
0: Okay. Okay. Done. Last Things <laughs> First This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Bruzel at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave. Logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first! Last things first!